Okay. Okay. If I could get your attention, we'll get this started. As you know, we're studying the uh, book of Joshua, and we're in jo Joshua chapter 3. Can you hear me back there? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Perfect. All right, Joshua chapter 3, and we're going to try to make three chapters very ambitious today. Uh, Joshua chapter 3 through 5, and this is our uh, third lesson, if I'm thinking correctly, out of eight. We're going to do eight in this series. Uh, you should be getting the, uh, some study questions every week for each one of these lessons, and you should be getting a message, about a three-page message on this. If you don't, uh, give me your email address, because I may have you on a different list, or, you know, this is, this is too complicated for me. I've, you know, I've got all these different distribution lists, and I've got no idea what's going on about half the time. Uh, it's part of our vast organization that, you know. <laughs> Somebody said, who's the head of your organization? I said, do you want to be? <laughs> right. Uh, and today's story is a transition story. It's, it's really uh, marks a, a big change, kind of like uh, the, the change that came into Kramer's life when he went into a new business. Oh, what? Uh, Successful Bible study. <laughs> yeah, just another one. All right. Today's event in chapter 3 is what we might call a watershed event. A watershed. Don't you love that word? I, I love stuff like that. So I went and looked it up. What is exactly a watershed? We all use that. Know what it means. But the dictionary said... It, a watershed is something like a rock formation or a piece of land, anything that causes a river to change course completely, go a different direction. So a watershed event causes a turning point, a different uh, direction in history. So when we say a watershed event, we mean it changes history. And I looked up uh, uh, the top ten watershed events in the history of the world. Number 10, the Russian Revolution, 1917. Number 9, the invention of the steam engine. 8, the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand that started World War I. 7, the Black Plague that wiped out two-thirds of China's population and half of Europe in 1348. Number 6, the storming of the Bastille, French Revolution of 1789. 5, the development of the vaccine for smallpox, which was the deadliest disease in history. It killed 500 million people in the 20th century alone. Four, the invention of the printing press with movable type in 1436. And you don't really think about that, but that was the beginning of the information explosion. I mean, there was just very little information. Everything had to be handwritten. And the writing material was very poor. So there was very little information in those days, and all of a sudden now an explosion of pamphlets and books and magazines and newspapers. Uh, number three, Martin Luther's publication in 1517 of the 95 Theses that began the Reformation. Number two, 
December 7, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which brought America into the World War and, and really escalated it and, and changed the course of history. And of course, number one, can anybody guess what the number one watershed event in history is? Something near and dear to our heart. The birth of Jesus Christ. I think I would, you know, I could possibly find some differences in all those other nine. But number one, they nailed it. Right? Nobody has influenced and changed history like Jesus did. When you think, I mean, just all the little things. Our calendars built around him, our dating system, uh, the religious difference he made. It's just amazing. A watershed event. And today we see a big watershed event in the history of Israel because they were going to cross the Jordan River. And for the first time, they were going to go into the promised land. And so what happens, what are the, what's the transition that we're looking at? Uh, transition into a new nation, a new land. They're going from living in tents for 40 years to permanent houses. Uh, no more were they going to eat manna every day. They were going to eat actual food that they harvested themselves. They were going from defense to offense. They had been strictly fighting against nations in a defensive way, just trying to travel through. Now they're going to go on the offense and attack the Canaanites. Uh, they're going to go from following the pillar of cloud. They went it wherever it went. Uh, no longer was God going to provide that. Now they were to follow the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and, of course, they had a new leader uh, transition from Moses to Joshua. And so the biggie, of course, is the promise, going into the promised land and becoming a literally a nation, whereas before they had just been 12 tribes wandering in the wilderness, you know, and before that, uh, a group of people in slavery in Egypt. So uh, a, a serious watershed event that changes everything for Israel. All, it's a whole new world for them going into the promised land. And in today's lesson, we've got three big events that, that you need to pay attention to. Number one is that judgment from God. And in other words, he was going to, to come in and judge the, the nation of Canaanites and wipe them out as he had uh, commanded many times. Secondly, uh, the renewal of the covenant. Once they cross the river, you're going to have the renewal of the covenant, which is circumcision and Passover, because God had made those both symbols of the covenant that he gave Abraham. Remember, way back in Genesis 17, God gave Abraham the covenant that was sealed by circumcision. And amazingly enough, uh, the, the prior generation uh, did not circumcise their children as they were commanded to do. So they've got to stop once they cross the river. God says, now before, before you go on, you've got to get right with me. And uh, I commanded Abraham and all his descendants to be circumcised. And so they had to stop there. Once, instead of attacking immediately, they had to be circum circumcised. All the children that had been born uh, to all the people that left Egypt had to be circumcised. They also had not been celebrating Passover. Remember back in Genesis 12, God said, I want you to memorialize this event. 
The angel of death passed over their houses because of the innocent blood on their doors. And so God said, I want you to always remember how God spared you and what God has done for you in bringing you out. I want you to memorialize Passover every year. In April, you are to celebrate the Passover. And then he gave him instructions how to do that. Well, once they left, you know, they did it one time at Mount Sinai. And then they, didn't, they just kind of blew it off from that point. And so God says, we need to get you back on track. So you need to celebrate Passover. And it just happened to be the month of April. Perfect timing, right? Gosh, it's almost like that was planned. Like some benevolent being was in control of things, right? Uh, and then thirdly, they're to erect a memorial there on the, on the other side of the river. If they, he's going to tell them in today's lesson, as you're crossing the river, it'll be dry when they cross. I want you to appoint 12 men, one from each tribe, to pick out a large stone about as big as they could carry and take it over. And I want you to build a monument there so that you can tell your children and their children and their children, this is where the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River and God gave them the land. Don't ever take it for granted, children, grandchildren. God gave you this land and we love God and we worship God only and we belong to Him. You know, so memorials, very important uh, event. Uh, and also God has given us memorials. We'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, this is basically the, the three big events in today's lesson. But starting out in chapter 3, the question's got to be, okay, we're, we're, we're told that the river, the Jordan River, they're on the east side of the Jordan River. Have we got some, what do we got, maps next? Yeah, maps. Let's look at the maps just so you can get, a, get your bearings. The map over here on the right, you see the whole country. You see the Jordan River coming down from the north. The Jordan River is formed by Mount Carmel, which is up there where Lebanon is today. Mount Carmel is the highest point in the Middle East. It's 9,500 feet or something like that. And you get quite a bit of snow up there. Believe it or not, Israel actually has a uh, ski slope business up there. <laughs> That's the truth. I've been there. Uh, anyway, so the, the water, when it, in the spring, you have the spring uh, runoff of the snow from the mountain. And it forms the Jordan River up there in the far north part and flows down and, and flows into the, you don't see it, but just north of that map is this Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. So it flows into the Sea of Galilee, and it's a natural lake. It was a big depression there. It forms a natural lake. But then the water comes out of the south side of the Sea of Galilee and flows down into the Jordan, I mean into the uh, Dead Sea there that you see. That's the Dead Sea. Uh, and they're camped just north of the Dead Sea, across from Jericho in today's lesson. So they're going to cross the river right there and they're going to camp and they're going to, they're going to make basically their own campsite they're going to call Gilgal. And guess what Gilgal means? Circle of stones for the monument that they built there. Right? And so they, they literally, uh, you can see Gilgal on, the, on this map here. Uh, it's going to be like the uh, storage depot 
for Israel in their conquest, but it's also going to be where they leave the women and children. So they literally just create a little town there in Gilgal where they leave all the women and children and all their stuff as they take Jericho and then they go into the central highlands and take all the cities uh, and the rest of what will be Israel. So you can see that gray area. That's a, that's a depression formed by a geologic depression there that forms all these uh, rivers and lakes right there in Jerusalem. A very unique area. There's nothing like it. Uh, the, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. 1,700 feet below sea level. And it's formed, I don't know if you've been there, if anybody, if you've been there, you know, it's, it's, it looks like water, but when you get into it, it's like minerals. And it's real salty, and it's, it's just this mineral thing where I don't care who you are. You can be the heaviest or the lightest or, or dense or not dense. You float on top of it like a cork. Because it's not like the water that you're, that you're heavier than. It's like this stuff that you, know, that you just float on. It's really weird. Um, and it's formed because the water flows in there, and this is the lowest point on earth, so the water cannot flow out. It's the lowest point on earth, so the water can't flow out. And it's so hot at that lowest point on earth that the water evaporates and leaves all the minerals in the Dead Sea. And that's how it's formed. Okay? You don't know it, but all water has trace elements of uh, very small trace elements of salt and minerals and what have you. It's so small, so tiny percentage that we drink it and it, do, it doesn't, uh, you know, we don't taste it, it doesn't mean anything to us. But after thousands of years of evaporation and all that being left there, you end up with a big salt mineral sea there, the Dead Sea. And of course it's called the Dead Sea because there's nothing living in it, <laughs> literally. Nothing lives in, the, in that dense uh, mineral deposits there. Okay? So they're going to cross uh, right across from Jericho, as you can see there, and camp at Gilgal. Alright? But they, the big question then is, okay, how are they going to cross the river? You ever had an unsolvable problem? <laughs> or it seemed unsolvable, Right? Your, your crisis-type problems are cleverly disguised as unsolvable problems. You, know, you think it, you, you brainstorm it, and you talk to everybody, and, but there's no solution to this problem. And this is one of those. There are three million people. How are you going to get three million people across a river that's in flood stage, it says, we're told? Probably about a mile wide, I'm told. And, and really rapid currents through it because there's so much water coming through there. So how are you going to get across that thing? Uh, you think they're just like really good swimmers? Think they had some really good engineers to build bridges? Uh, how are they going to do it? You know, I'm sure they're, they're trying to figure that out too. But of course that's going to be answered by the Lord. And that's why they're going to build that memorial because God did a miracle there. And it's a miracle that's very much like how they left Egypt. And we'll talk about a little comparison of that. He parted the Red Sea, right? And they left Egypt across dry land in very similar fashion. He's going to hold back the river. The river's different than a sea, right? 
So a, a sea you part, but a river you hold back. And so he's going to hold back the river uh, all the way back to about where the Jabbok River is. There's a little town up there called Adam or Adam. Um, and so it's about 20 miles that God's going to dam up. Because think how long it would take 3 million people to cross. If they went in like double file like they did in the Ten Commandments, it would take 30 years. <laughs> think, I mean, think how many people that is walking in by twos. You know? So they had to cross in a wide swath of people you know, to get across in any recognizable uh, period of time. And so God held the water back and they had about 20 miles to cross in. Okay? Alright. Uh, as we look at that, uh, that transition that we looked at before and now we've solved the problem how they're going to get across, that's going to be up to God. You know? And does that tell you anything about your unsolvable problems? When you have one of those and if you don't have one right now, I hate to tell you this, but just, stop, just stay at the bus stop. It'll be coming. <laughs> it's a part of life. And you get these uns unsolvable crisis problems and it comes down to you've got to give it up to the Lord. You've got to live by faith and let Him work this out. Do everything you can do, but at the end of the day, it's going to be up to the Lord. It's in the Lord's hands. And so you pray. You do everything you can do, and you pray your heart out, you know. And uh, God will take care of it one way or the other. As He did in this story. Okay? So, uh, that's what the, the story's about. And we look to Joshua chapter 3. A dis just a spectacular display of divine power that we're getting ready to look at. There's a barrier how are they going to get across this barrier? God's going to take care of it. And so the, the, the two crossings of the Red Sea and also the Jordan kind of act as bookends in the history of, of uh, the Exodus. You know, you've got one behind you when they left Egypt and one in front of you where you enter the Promised Land. Uh, and God basically does a similar miracle for both of those. And if you contrasted them, you'd see that one terminated the slavery in Egypt, and the other initiated statehood. One was an escape miracle versus an entrance miracle. The Lord parted the sea but piled up the river, performed at night versus the day. Thousands of Egyptians were killed up there at the Red Sea, but not down here at the Jordan River. Up there at the Red Sea, there was no faith exhibited. They just said, how are we going to get across? And Moses said, watch this. But down here, uh, faith and obedience is required. God tells them what they need to do for this miracle to occur, and they're going to be obedient by faith, believing that God's going to do something. All right? So, uh, in chapter 3, we read, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel, and set out from Shittim, and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And if you weren't here last week, you probably said, thought I just said a foul word. Of... <laughs> but in Hebrew, Shittim means that the acacia wood that the ark was made out of. And so um, the town there was named after that. So they left that town, as you can see on the map, uh, that's 
over this map here where the arrow's pointing, and they come across. It's called Abel Shittim there. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. So they were camped there at the river for three days. And Moses gave instructions to the officers, and that's how they passed the information to so many people. And they went through the midst of the camp and commanded the people saying, here's what's going to happen. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Again, before they'd always been following the pillar of cloud. God had said, I'm going to put my glory in a cloud and you can, you can follow it by day and at night it'll give you light and you can walk at night. But now they're going to follow the ark of the covenant. And we'll talk about what that represents in a little while. So there's instructions. This is what's going to happen. When you see, you're going to put a distance of 2,000 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches, so 3,000 feet by measure. Uh, you don't come up against it. You want to stay away from it because not only is it holy, but he wants everybody to be able to see it. So in a sense, the further it is away, and you can see in this depression that you're going down into the river, so the people would be going up, and they all of them could see the ark out there in the middle of the lower depression of the river. So you can't get within 3,000 feet of it. Don't, don't move until you see it at that far away. Uh, and then you will go into the, cross the river with them. But beforehand you need to do something. Verse 5, you need to do something. Consecrate yourself. Now, why does mankind need to do that? Because I can think of at least two problems that all of us have. One is pride, and two is self-reliance. I can do anything. Nobody can stop me. Right? And so consecration involves humility and dependence. Humility and dependence. It literally means to wash yourself, to clean yourself outwardly and inwardly. So you make sacrifices to the Lord, confessing your sin. So humility and dependence is what they were commanded to exhibit. Uh, and they're to have faith that God's getting ready to do something and to expect it, to pray about it. And then Joshua, verse 6, spoke to the priest saying, take up the ark of the covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, so this is God speaking directly to Joshua, giving him encouragement. This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. So they followed Moses all this time, and they saw the miracles that God did for him, and how God blessed him. But now he just died, so can we really trust this Joshua guy? And God's saying, what do you see what I'm going to do? When they see that, they will trust you and they will follow you and they will know that God is blessing you. That's, that's his point there. So he says, verse 8, You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Now if I'm one of those priests, I'm thinking, 
You want us to walk out into the river and stand there? That thing, the current will carry us out of here. We'll end up in the Dead Sea down there. You know? So this was an act of faith. To obey a command like that, you, it had to be by faith. They had to believe that God was going to do something. And so Joshua said, verse 10, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. So he's now broadcasting to the officers who are telling the people, watch what God's going to do. You'll know that God's with you and He's going to take care of you and you're going to be able to cross this river and then He's going to give you the land based on this miracle. The living God is among you and that He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite. So the seven tribes of the Canaanites, He's going to dispossess. We talked about this a little bit last week. And uh, have we got that thing on the um, wiping out the Canaanites? Did I get ahead of myself? Yeah. So God had said, this is in Deuteronomy, show them no mercy. Wipe them out. And of course the problem we have with that as Christians, we say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. So what's going on here? We talked about this last week, but very quickly. Uh, first of all, this is a command to us personally. We are to love our, our enemies. It's up to God to judge people, not us. But that's the point. God is judging the Canaanites. God is judging the Canaanites. And believe me, they got it coming. <laughs> and if you don't think that's possible, read Leviticus 18. It is a mind blower. Um, I did it in Sunday school uh, yesterday and and the people were just, you know, had their fists, you know, <laughs> let them have it. Well, you know, they're, they're the worst. They had sex with all their relatives. They were into pedophilia, uh, adultery, bestiality. And I could go on and on, but it ended with they sacrificed their children to idols, the, you know, the false gods of the idols. Does that blow your mind? And God put up with that for a thousand years. And we saw back in Genesis 15 where God told Abraham back then that this is when I'm going to bring Israel into the land when the Canaanites' sin reaches such a point that I can't take it anymore and I've got to destroy them. Then I'm going to give you the land because at that time I will also dispossess the Canaanites. So that's the difference. God is dispossessing as a judgment against the Canaanites and it is His right as a holy, righteous God to judge us and all people. Just like He did Sodom and Gomorrah, just like He did at the great flood with Noah, He's going to wipe them out. So it's a judgment from God and it's a protection of Israel from pollution of idolatry. So God says if you leave them there, before you know it, they will corrupt you. You're not going to save them. They will corrupt you. They're that bad. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, it will fulfill God's promise to give the land to Abraham's descendants, to Israel. So, yes, dispossess the Canaanites. They got it coming. And so verse 11, 
Behold the Ark of the Covenant. And you may notice uh, as we go through this, the repetition constantly of the Ark of the Covenant. Keep your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. Follow the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so it's really a fixture of everything that's going on in chapter 3. And he says, uh, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing overhead of you into the Jordan. So watch it. And when it gets out into the middle of the Jordan, then you will step out as well. Now then, in preparation for that, he says, verse 12, Take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. So they're going to get twelve men, a representation from every tribe. And as they walk across on the dry land, each one is to pick up the largest stone that they can carry and carry it to the other side, and then they're going to build this memorial to the Lord, to what God's doing here on the other side, so they can show it to their children and mark the place where this incredible miracle happened when God brought them across. So he says, Take for yourself twelve men. Come back when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the water. As soon as the priest touched the water, something's going to happen. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. And the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand up in one heap. It will be like damned up by the power of God. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows. So he's telling you, it's in flood stage, all its banks of the days of the harvest, this period of the year, April, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away up at Adam or Adam. So about 20 miles away. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut. So all the water flowed down into the salt sea and all the other water was held up. So it was all dry for that big swath of land between Adam and the Dead Sea. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing. So let's talk for a second, I think, about the ark, right? Let's look at the ark. You can see them carrying the ark across. The priests are down. See how they're all down? They can see down. Uh, the ark represented, why were they to follow it? Why, why was it such a big deal? It's what it represents. It represents God's presence. God is with you. It represents God's glory when... When they put it in the tabernacle, the glory of God was above the ark. Uh, and God's holiness, His moral law, the Ten Commandments, was in the ark. That's basically what the ark is. Uh, it's a box. It's a box in which the Ten Commandments are kept. So it's, it represents God's holy, righteous standard that they're following. And of course it represents God's mercy because it's the ark that the priests come in on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of the nation 
on that one year of the that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Okay, so it's it's you know it's a big deal. It's a big deal in their religion, and this is what it looks like. Um, if you saw the the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they did a great job. I mean, they that representation in the movie was right on, and you could see it's just it's a box there. It's two and a half cubits in length, which is what three feet nine inches. Just did the math real quick, you know. <laughs> so it's not very big. You can see that's not very big at all, uh, but it's just big enough to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, above were the uh, two angels, the cherubim, those are their wings spread across. That's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where they sprinkled the blood of the lamb once a year up there, yeah. Okay? And it was only to be carried by the priests with wooden poles through the golden rings. And the ark is, is uh, completely overlaid inside and out in gold. And a lot of people wonder, okay, uh, where's that ark now? <laughs> Knowing that, that that question will probably come up. Well, uh, the easiest answer is, is that uh, many years later in 586 B.C., so that's, almost, that's a thousand years almost later after this, uh, when God has to judge Israel, He brings the Babylonian army down to judge them and Jerusalem is destroyed. And the text says in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that when the Babylonians came into the temple, they took all the artifacts uh, back and they took everything to Babylon and everything that was made out of gold, they melted the gold down and destroyed the rest. Uh, and so it's pretty clear that the ark uh, was no more, which is... Uh, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, in the Indiana Jones movie, it was in Egypt. <laughs> well, you know, that's actually a legend, and that comes from the fact that when they were, um, <laughs> that comes from the fact when Babylon was coming, uh, they said, the legend was, that Jeremiah was the prophet in Jerusalem. And Babylon, I mean, yeah, Babylon did not kill Jeremiah, because he was actually the prophet that was telling them to surrender because this was a judgment from God. And the Babylonians knew that, heard about that, and said, okay, let that guy live. And he then went down to Egypt after that. So the, the legend was that when he went down to Egypt, he took the ark with him. Now, do you really think those greedy Babylonians are going to let him take all that gold? No. And I think the text is pretty clear that it was destroyed. There's also a church in Ethiopia that says that uh, they got it. <laughs> Which is complete baloney. I mean, they got it, but no one's ever seen it. Anyway, they get a lot of uh, people to come to look at it. Anyway, they trick a lot of people to come to look at it. All right, so back to the crossing the river. So you see them carrying it. They've got a cover over it, and the priests are carrying it across. Uh, in front of the people. And the whole nation crosses on dry ground just like they left Egypt. And the priests stand out there like divine crossing guards as they come, up, come across. Okay? 
Uh, and then in uh, chapter 4 is all about the memorial that we talked about. They're going to build uh, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, the, the 12 men, they, they were commanded, it repeats that, take up yourself the stones. Um, and so verse 4, Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark your Lord, in the middle of the Jordan, each of you take up a stone. So very uh, repetitious. But basically, in verse 7, a memorial. And he said, from this time on, everybody remember what happened. Show it to your children, your grandchildren, and everything. And when they say, what is that? Verse 18, tell them that this is the place where the Lord God held up the water and the whole nation crossed here. Okay? And then they, verse 20, they set up camp at Gilgal, which as I said is the name of the stones that they built there, the memorial. Uh, and, he, and he tells them uh, about making it a memorial. And how important are, are memorials? Uh, Deuteronomy, I don't know if we have, still have that quote. Deuteronomy 8 quote somewhere. Actually, uh, those stones that you picked up when you were there, they're, no. <laughs> no, uh, you know, obviously, that was uh, almost 15, what about, that's about 3,500 years ago. <laughs> so they got dispersed somehow. They're not there. But Deuteronomy 8, uh, Moses did instructions to Israel about how important memorials are. And he says, Beware and do not forget. That's the problem. People forget. We're notorious forgetters. And he says, don't forget what God's done. Otherwise, verse 12, when you've, when you've eaten and are satisfied, you've built good houses, lived in them, you've made a lot of money, everything's good, your herds and flocks multiply. Typically, what do people do? Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So that's the problem. That's why we need memorials. That's why we celebrate communion regularly at church, you know, at least once a month or whatever, uh, depending on what church you go to. And it's a memorial. You remember that Christ died for you by celebrating that. You need to remember constantly because we're terrible about that. Uh, and in chapter 5, is about consecrating themselves on the other side. It's a renewal of the covenant in chapter 5. You guys, your nation of Israel has blown it. Part of the covenant was the sign of the, of the covenant, which was the circumcision, and the memorializing of the covenant was the Passover, and you've blown it on both of those. So you need to stop and get that done. So in chapter 5, the first thing they have to do is be circumcised. And so verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. We have an actual picture of the actual flint knife. Yeah. And, uh, and everybody that had not been circumcised would have to be there. Is anybody here that hasn't? Been circumcised? Anybody? This, I guarantee you, this is a lot sharper than that one. 
Does that look sterile to you? <laughs> so they were going to be in pain and suffering a little for about a week before they could actually attack. You would think, here they are, witnessing this awesome miracle. You think, man, they're fired up. They're ready to go. Let's hit Jericho, baby. No. God says, you got to stop and you got to get yourself right. Because this is not going to be taken. This city's not going to be taken by you anyway. I'm going to give it to you. So you got to get right with God. So they got to renew the covenant, be circumcised, celebrate Passover, and then you can take Jericho. So in chapter 5, you see uh, verse 5, all the people who came out were circumcised. Well, wait a minute. Why weren't they before? Because all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. They really blew it. And God has patiently waited until now to let them do this. And, it, and it's, we're told in verse 6 that first generation did not listen to the Lord, did not obey Him, did not act in faith, but this one will. Uh, the children that raised up in their place Joshua circumcised. Verse 7. And it came about that after they had finished circumcising all the nations, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. You know, a week or ten days or whatever. And the Lord said, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Today you're cleaned up. All that stuff in your background, all the idolatry in Egypt, all the stuff that your parents did in the wilderness, you're good to go now. And he says, now it's Passover time. Just happens to be April. So you're going to need to do that too. Because you've blown that as well. And so they observed, verse 10, they observed Passover celebration there at Gilgal. Uh, and on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, just like Moses had commanded. Uh, unleavened bread and parts grain. And also another event happened at that time, verse 12. Now that they're in the land, God had said back in Deuteronomy, when you go into the land, you're going to go into a land flowing with milk and honey. And you go, what does that mean? It means it's already productive. The land, as a metaphor for it's already productive land. The crops have already been planted. You're going to walk in and the crops will be ripe and you take them. And all the farmhouses are built and the cities are built. God is going to give you a mature land that's already productive, already flowing with milk and honey and all the fruits of the Canaanites' labor. God is going to give you. And so the first thing they do, God cuts off the manna and they go and harvest some of the grain crop and eat that right there. So the manna ceased at that point in time. They've been getting it for 40 years, but no more. And then one more important thing, verse 13 through 15, one thing that had, they, they hadn't figured out yet. And that one thing is, how are we going to take Jericho? Anybody got a strategy? Anybody, any battering rams? No, we don't have any battering. Okay. How about siege towers? We got any dynamite? How are we ever going to take? Those walls are huge. What are we going to do? So they're still trying to figure that out. Well, God's going to tell them. And that's what verse 13 through 15 is about. This is Joshua's 
burning bush moment. It's exactly like Moses in Exodus 3 where God spoke to him. Verse 13, Now it came about Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's an interesting question that kind of tells you the way we think. We always want to think God's on our side. You know, if we're involved in some war or some whatever, God's on our side. He's against them for us. That's the wrong question. Are you on our side? Is the wrong question. You know what the right question is. Are we on God's side? That's what's important. Are we on God's side? And that's what the, the uh, angel is going to say here. And this is either a uh, messenger from God, an angel, it's either the angel or it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ because it's just like the burning bush and he says this is a holy place and he allows Joshua to bow down and worship him. So I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ. So that Christ says, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. The host is the army of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said, What is my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, we'll get into it next week. Uh, And next week we see that he tells them the instructions in chapter 6 about how to take Jericho, which is basically march around the city seven times in seven days, and the last day everybody shout and blow the horns and the wall come down, right? Um, So this is where he finds out the strategy to take Jericho. Another miracle is basically. So they're going to get started off with a couple of pretty awesome miracles in the conquest of the land. Well, let me close with this. When we think about, we started off talking about watershed events in the history of Israel. What is the ultimate watershed event in our lives is being born again or being born spiritually, right? Having Christ come into our life and change our heart, change us from the inside out. And that is marking the end of a life lived by human effort and the beginning of a life lived by faith and obedience to the provision of the Lord, which is Christ on the cross. And so we praise God for the watershed event in our lives when we came to Christ. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank You so much for blessing us with that great watershed event in which our lives were changed By Your work, You sent Your Son in to the world to die on the cross for us. By receiving Him by faith, we are saved and our life is being changed. And in His name we pray, Amen. Amen.